You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso, and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, D'Souza, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Rin Ketzel, Long Knives Logan, G.D. Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Eli the Cartographer, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Buddy, Heather, Howard, and Hunter. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I'd like to begin today by talking about birds. Last time we talked about how I picture Henry Avery, the blue naval officer's coat, the tricorn hat, and probably a navy-issue cutlass. Add to that the flintlock pistol he wore and the spyglass he carried, and you have an almost perfect image of a pirate. All you're missing are the disabilities due to injury that were so common among the pirates. You know, a hook hand and an eye patch and a peg leg. But then there's one other thing. One common accessory, traditional to the pirates. A brightly plumed parrot perched on the pirate captain's shoulder. It's something you often see in drawings of pirates intended for kids. You know, they'll have a bandana and a wooden sword and a parrot. But your more modern and mature and realistic depictions of pirates rarely have that parrot perched on their shoulder. It's, you know, goofy. It's, uh, it's kid stuff. Except that it's not. The parrot perched on a pirate's shoulder was a very real phenomenon. The pirate teaching his parrot to speak was a very real phenomenon. See, parrots, but more broadly, exotic birds in general, were about to become very big business. By about the middle of the 18th century, there were fleets sent out exclusively to trap exotic birds. The stranger they were, or more beautiful they were, the better. But the early days of this trade, not the beginning of the trade, but right about the 1680s and 1690s, it was a trade often, not exclusively, but often executed by pirates. You know, the European fascination with exotic, often tropical birds goes back to the Middle Ages. 
But this most recent craze in Europe can be traced back to 1684 and the court of King Louis XIV. There was this diplomatic embassy sent by the King of Siam, a kingdom that included parts of modern Thailand and Laos and Cambodia and even Vietnam, that really wowed the courts of both Louis XIV and Charles II. They wore strange clothes, they wore strange perfumes, they kowtowed to Louis XIV. Literally, it was a practice in Siam that was unknown in Europe and the origin of that word in English. But beyond that, they brought all manner of goods from Southeast Asia and a number of exotic wild animals. This embassy to France, sent by the King of Siam, would have massive consequences in global colonial geopolitics for centuries to come, but for our purposes, the most notable result immediately was the mania that gripped the rich and powerful of Europe in a fever for their exotic birds. You know, if you picture a lavish, noblest state in Europe, there's almost certainly going to be a few wild and certainly not native birds wandering around flashing their brilliant plumage. You'll also notice that flightless birds tend to be the most common in those estates. I suspect because they can't fly away, therefore they stay on your land, therefore they continue to be exclusive to the elite. The peacock was probably the most popular of these birds, but there were others. For example, there was what we call today the helmeted guinea fowl. They have this beautiful black and white spotted plumage, but to crown it, they have a bright blue head. The helmeted guinea fowl are also pretty large. A lot of, a lot of meat on a guinea fowl. They in fact have been domesticated, and it wouldn't surprise me if a few of you out there have eaten guinea fowl. At the time, though, they weren't called the helmeted guinea fowl. They were called the turkey bird. Now, the helmeted guinea fowl comes originally from Africa. The most beautiful varieties originate in Madagascar. But they were imported to Europe via Turkey. And aside from their bright blue head, which is, you know, pretty noticeable, but aside from that, they do look a bit like an American turkey. Which is, of course, where the turkey, which some of us might enjoy at Thanksgiving, gets its name. But all of these exotic birds, the, the peacock and the helmeted guinea fowl and naturally the parrot, those that could be taught to recite words were the most popular, they were all common sights on pirate ships. And why not? You know, you make a landing, you have men out collecting wood and water, why not send a party of trappers out to see if they can't find some exotic birds? When your ship finally does make it back to port with all of your pirated goods, you will be dealing with merchants who deal in spices and dyes and all manner of exotic goods. They have contacts among the rich and powerful. They're going to be able to sell your talking parrot. And they're going to be able to get a very good price for it. All of which is to say, when you picture Henry Avery standing on the deck of the fancy today, or Thomas too for that matter, or really any of the pirates, feel free to picture them feeding hardtack to a bright-plumaged parrot perched upon their shoulder. This is episode 218, 
idleness. I should warn you that in today's episode, not a lot is going to happen. Don't worry, we have plenty to talk about, but as far as the narrative thrust of the episode goes, there's not much going on. Now, I could have skipped right to the exciting stuff, and I almost did, but I decided against it despite the storytelling sin that it might be. Because there is a lot to talk about, but for the pirates, for some time, they didn't have much going on. Now that they were gathered at the Bob Almondab Strait, the Gate of Tears, under Admiral Henry Every, well, really all they had to do was to wait for their prey to come to them and to spring the trap shut. But they had a problem there. Last time we mentioned that the Islamic calendar was a lunar calendar, and that the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, moved a couple of weeks forward every year. The pirates here at the Gate of Tears may or may not have been aware of that fact. You know, none of them were intimately familiar with the Muslim calendar. I suspect that some of them were kind of cognizant that the months did shift. Maybe Thomas too, probably Henry Every, and maybe they took it into consideration, but most of the pirates there at the Gate of Tears were kind of you know, befuddled by the whole thing. And none of them, even had they grown up in Mecca, would have known when the ships bound for Mocha on their way to Mecca would be passing through the Gate of Tears. That is to say that they didn't even know if those ships had passed by already or if they were still on their way to the Gate of Tears. Again, I think Henry Every was pretty sure, but... The rest of the fleet just kind of had to trust him on that. So they waited. They kept one eye turned south to the Gulf of Aden, in case the Mughal fleet was still on its way to meet them, and they kept the other eye turned north up the Red Sea in case it was coming back to meet them. One way or another, here in an isolated cove on Param Island, they would be there to catch the Mughal fleet when it arrived. And they waited. Days passed, and then a couple of weeks, and still there was no sign of the Mughal fleet. The men on board the ships began to get a bit nervous. They had plenty of food and water, and probably some drinks, so that wasn't an issue, so they just kind of spent their days sharpening their swords and oiling their guns and waiting. While they do so, let's turn our eyes elsewhere for a bit. I did have kind of an ulterior motive in bringing up those birds earlier. It's the turkey bird. It came from Madagascar to Turkey, but it did so most often aboard Mughal ships. Sometimes just regular trading ships, but mostly it was these grand Mughal fleets, fleets owned by the royal family of the empire. Every year they would sail from India toward the Red Sea, and often they would stop on Madagascar. For the same reason the pirates did, wood and water, maybe some food, and, if they were lucky, some exotic birds to trade once they reached Arabia. But they hadn't done so in a couple of years, and they certainly weren't doing so in 1695. The threat of pirates in the region was just too high. Now, they may not have known about St. Mary's Island, or Adam Baldridge, or, down to the south, St. Augustine Bay, 
and they certainly did not know about the fleet of English pirates currently waiting for them at the Gate of Tears. But they were aware that European pirates in the region were a growing problem. But more than the English, they were worried, ironically, about the French. Remember, the English pirates at Bob's Key had picked up two separate French pirate fleets in the past several weeks. Most of that French piracy was out of Reunion Island, to the southeast of Madagascar. It was a French outpost for any ships that might be sailing to the East Indies, but it was a harbor for many a French buccaneer. And we should... Well, we do need to talk a bit about geopolitics in 1695. The Mughal Empire was in no way involved in the Nine Years' War. They were just a couple of years removed from a war with England and the East India Company, but they were not at war in 1695. Their very close friends, the Ottoman Empire, were not officially involved in the Nine Years' War either. They were, however, involved in what they call the Great Turkish War. That was a war between the Ottoman Empire and the Austrian Empire. This Great Turkish War had been going on since the early 1680s. You may recall that army of Transylvanian and Mongol soldiers that marched on Vienna. You may also recall that King Louis XIV of France used this to his advantage. While the Ottomans were attacking Vienna, he launched the War of the Reunions on the western front of the Holy Roman Empire. It was a move that made everyone who was not French angry at King Louis XIV. It's probably the primary factor in there being a grand alliance between the Netherlands, England, and the Holy Roman Empire to stop King Louis XIV from doing this kind of thing ever again. But, while England and the Netherlands were allied to the Holy Roman Empire in the League of Augsburg, that was only for the Nine Years' War against France. They were not allied in the war against the Ottomans. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. That was Emperor Leopold I's concern. William III didn't want anything to do with it. That means, of course, that Vienna was involved in two wars at once, one on the Eastern Front and one on the Western Front. 
And again, officially, France was not involved in any way in the Great Turkish War. But you may remember that the Franco-Ottoman alliance goes back to the early 1500s when Barbarossa initiated contact between France and the Ottoman Empire by wintering near Toulon. Did you manage to follow all of that? I hope so, because you need to also remember that the Ottoman Empire and the Mughal Empire were very close allies. Persia, really Safavid Iran, sat right in the middle of the two empires. The sectarian divide in the Muslim world ensured that Turkey and India would stay close in their opposition to Iran. But despite their close alliance status, Mughal India was not involved in the Great Turkish War. You know, they could be, it really wouldn't be too far out of their way to send money and ships and guns and food and men to Istanbul, which would then be funneled into the war against Vienna. Naturally, this would lead to the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire and the Allied war effort against Louis XIV. That could happen, but it was not happening. And thanks to all of the complex alliances and treaties that had been signed by these international empires, it was unlikely to happen. There was this balance critical to preserving the League of Augsburg and holding Louis XIV back. But for the moment, it was holding steady. That's what makes it odd to me that these French pirates were threatening Mughal shipping. They weren't exactly allied with the Mughal Empire in any way whatsoever, but they were allied with the Mughal Empire's close allies. You know, friends of friends should probably not be prey. Still, though, that's not the worst possibility. The worst possibility, and this is just a pure hypothetical situation, I'm not saying that anything like this could or would happen, but if, hypothetically, an English pirate fleet were to attack a Mughal fleet, the Mughal Empire might just decide it was in their interest to join the war against Vienna and, therefore, the war against England. But, of course, that's not going to happen, right? On that note, what were the pirates up to there at Bob's Key? Well, isn't that just nice? But, you know, maybe it really wasn't going to happen. The pirates were still just kind of waiting there. And things on board the various ships in the fleet were starting to get pretty tense. After their first couple of weeks waiting, everybody correctly assumed that they had missed the Mughal fleet on their way to Mecca. But when those weeks dragged on into a month... Some of the men began to worry that they'd in fact missed the fleet on their way from Mecca. That maybe the fleet of the Grand Mughal was already safe and sound back in India. And this was a legitimate concern, something that was kind of eating away at the men's confidence. But as more and more time began to pass, 
the pirates had another and perhaps more pressing concern on their minds. E.T. Fox writes in King of the Pirates, quote, Minor repairs and maintenance were probably carried out to the rigging, sails, and decks of the pirate vessels, ensuring they were in the best of shape. But everyday idling in the water meant more and more weed and barnacles accumulating on the hulls beneath the waterline. The pirates could not afford to careen their vessels. They must be ready for a chase when the pilgrim fleet appeared. Every day the ships got a little slower, imperceptibly at first, but over six or seven weeks probably quite significantly, as later events bear out. Each day the stock of food and drink got a little smaller as 400 men ate their rations. Now, I'm going to put some words in your mouth. You know, I don't know what any of you are thinking, but I'm going to take a guess. I've been talking about this piracy, this big act of piracy for some time now, and you are here for it, waiting for the big act of piracy. And instead, you've got barnacles. You've got some jerk talking to you about the alliance between the Ottoman Empire and, and France. I mean, what's that about? You've been waiting to hear about this piracy for uh, probably about a month now. But listen, you've got to trust me here. This alliance between France and the Ottoman Empire is really important. I know it may not be the most exciting thing, but while we wait, I mean, it's something we need to consider here, right? And I doubt any of you are, like, angry, angry about it, but some of you are probably a little bit annoyed. And I get that. I do. But while you're sitting here listening to this at work or at home or in your car, imagine that you're sitting on the deck of a ship, baking in the hot Arabian sun, and you've been promised this big act of piracy, and yet instead what you've got are barnacles. You've got this jerk telling you that really right now what you need to focus on is the alliance between the Ottoman Empire and the French, because trust me guys, it's really important, right? And it is actually important, and Henry Every knew that it was important. But the men on board the fleet of which he was admiral were starting to get not exactly angry, but a little bit annoyed. There wasn't a threat of, you know, a mutiny, but there was a threat that the fleet was going to break up and sail away. All the captains, but especially Thomas II and Henry Every, spent a good deal of their time going from ship to ship, telling everybody that everything was under control. They had nothing to worry about, the ships had absolutely not sailed back down from Mecca while they weren't looking. And usually this did the job, but as the weeks dragged on, their words became less and less convincing. And every once in a while, one of these ships in the fleet would go off to scout, either up the Red Sea or out to the Gulf of Aden. But there was always a worry that they might not come back. And if they didn't, who's to say that it wouldn't create a domino effect? Happily, they did always come back, but less happily, they never saw anything useful. And then another worry began to weigh on the minds of the men. Maybe they'd been spotted. Maybe word of their presence had spread. 
Maybe the Grand Mughal fleet up the Red Sea was waiting while yet another fleet sailed up the Gulf of Aden to trap them. Maybe they would be caught in the crossfire and every last man and ship in the fleet destroyed. And as the days continued to stretch, that slight possibility grew and grew in the minds of the crewmen. A sentiment began to spread among the pirates that it might be for the best if they got out of there before, you know, doom befell every one of them. But when those sentiments began to reach a critical mass, Henry Every or Thomas too would come over and reassure them, to placate them and to tell them that for just a little while longer they had to sit and wait. And the men, to their credit, they did. They waited while June gave way to July, and then July gave way to August. They waited there at the Gate of Tears until mid-August with no sign of the Mughal fleet. Finally, though, nearing the point of real panic, the pirates decided to ready a pinnace. They loaded her up with a crack team of the very best men they had available, and that pinnace sailed off to the north. In a mere two days, though, it returned. One day out, they captured a boat from Mocha just off the coast, and they brought back with them two prisoners. Those two men told the pirates that the fleet of the Grand Mughal was indeed still at anchor up the Red Sea, but when their small boat set sail, all twenty-five ships of the Grand Mughal's fleet were preparing to make their way south. The pirates were elated. All of that panic dissipated. They got back to sharpening their sabers and oiling their big guns. They set a constant watch. Every set of eyes on board was facing north, waiting for any sign of sails on the horizon. For a day, and then two, and then three and four. And you'd think that regardless of how many days passed here, they would stay vigilant. I mean, they had word that the fleet was coming right now. And they tried to stay vigilant, but then came day five, and then day six. The men were beginning to get await There are sails on the horizon, coming right toward them. But it's just one ship and not a large ship by the look of it. Still, though, they couldn't let her go. Any ship that had seen the pirates would carry word of them, so they sent out a couple of pirate ships and brought her in. The captain of that smaller coastal merchantman had bad news. His ship had been following the Grand Mughal's fleet, and as far as he knew was still doing so. They'd set sail some days before, and, if his calculations were correct, they should have passed through the Gate of Tears sometime in the night. It could be that a watchman fell asleep when the Grand Mughal's fleet of twenty-five large Ganja Dao passed. Maybe someone got drunk and managed to miss them on the watch, but I doubt it. There were a ton of men keeping a lookout. I think that the Grand Mughal's fleet knew that there were probably pirates waiting at the Gate of Tears and took every necessary precaution. 
They doused their lanterns. They sailed wide of any known coves where an ambush could be waiting, and they sailed quiet on the deck. Pretty impressive for a fleet of twenty-five large ships, but the pirates didn't have any time to be impressed. They had a fleet to catch. They weren't going to let this deter them, not after waiting for as long as they had. So Every and Thomas, too, and all of the other captains got their men in motion to get underway as fast as possible. After all, their fortune was currently getting away from them. On the 1st of September, 1695, the fleet of pirates under Henry Every and Thomas, too, Joseph, Pharaoh, Richard, Want, and all the rest, made their way out into the Gulf of Aden, pursuing the Grand Mughal's fleet. And that's where we're going to leave it today. I know, it's terrible. But what's coming is too big for the end of an episode. It's too big for one episode. Next time, The Gun's Way. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, all of you who have left us ratings or reviews, and everyone who has recommended this show, you all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly... Thank you for listening. Tonight